Hello, everyone, and welcome to Series 2, Episode 1 of the Rally DNA podcast. Thanks again for joining us. Uh, this week, we have a fantastic special guest, Paul Howarth of ProDrive, one of the men responsible for the Group early at Group A E30 M3. Thanks very much for joining us, Paul. Uh, good evening. Uh, so this week, yeah, we've chosen to focus primarily on a particular car, one that the discussion on actually led to the inception of this podcast and a desire to cover this kind of content. So before we begin, I'm going to talk a little about why this car stands out to me and why it's remained something that's so special to rally fans the world over. For any card-carrying bobblehatter, one of the chief influences of what makes a car on a special stage stand out as special is the sound it makes and the emotion that invokes on you as a spectator. Now, it goes without saying that throughout BMW's rich history in motorsport and on, with road cars, they produce some incredible sounding power plants from the V12 found in the McLaren F1, the S85 V10 in the E60 M5, and a whole heap of very pleasing inline sixes. For me, the howling four-pot 2.3-litre S14 in motorsport trim trumps the lot. Certainly up there, one hell of a noise. Uh, I've always really appreciated the, the sort of weird... Uh, sector that, that the E30 represents, that sort of tiny spell where a two-wheel drive, very specialised tarmac racer could trump quite ponderous all-wheel drive Group A cars. Didn't last for very long and it couldn't, but it, it's always fascinated me. And uh, let's face it, the E30 is by far the most charismatic of, of them all. Yeah, I'll never forget the first time standing on a closed road tarmac stage and being passed by that, that timeless box-arched body. The engine close to its 9k rpm rev limit and you know truly spine tingling experience and one that never fades with repeat occurrences and while that gloriously high revving inline four is undoubtedly the beating heart of the m3 it is but but one part in many and in order for such an elite roster of drivers like bernard begwin billy coleman patrick snyers mark Douay, and bertie fisher to pull off their on-stage heroics they needed a capable machine prepared by an outfit who knew how to get the most from a platform and run it successfully on events and that outfit was the Banbury-based ProDrive. And of course, that's why we've enlisted Paul here to, to talk us through some of the history of the car. Mm. Yeah, maybe a few of your listeners might recall a bit of the early days of the M3 on Circuit of Ireland. Uh, I actually started at ProDrive at the beginning of 89, so I missed a little bit of the real adventure. Uh, but I, I do like your anecdote about the high revving what we would call, you know, a P10, P10 chip, which was a rev limiter, a 9.8. Um, uh, it was in the days where you would, uh, noise check wasn't the thing you needed to pass, especially in Europe, the noisier the better. Uh, so there was, yeah, there was some, you know, heard some cars, a twin silencer system for, for the world championship events, but predominantly throughout uh, wherever it competed, it was virtually straight through open open pipe so you'd hear them for miles miles nice. and miles especially on a recce as well because we'd use full spec group air cars for practice so uh in, days yeah so in the, there were different days than what they are now so uh, yeah so uh, yeah i think you've hit the nail on the head you missed one key driver there francois chateau one of the most successful drivers in the multiple french tarmac champion he was a man towards the end at still would fight the Lanciers in places like Corsica. Uh, and in the French Championship, Bruno Sabi could never get the measure of Francois, especially in 1990, the last year of it. He was, he was unique in that car. Uh, so uh, we didn't quite, in 90, Corsica didn't quite come off, but no, I think there was three BMWs in the top 10, if I'm right. So it was still a phenomenal car. And then the hero of uh, Irish Tarmac, uh, was special as well, which come to with some great years. Uh, as everyone tells you, when you go to Ireland, this is Irish tarmac. You know, there's a lot to learn, and you know, there's a lot of great people out there can give you quite a few tips. You know, whether it be about the shiny tar or the bumps or the, you know, all the anomalies what you find from north to south of Ireland. So uh, we managed to fine tune a car to to take on uh, a lot of the Ford competitors. Bertie was the first stalwart of that and then followed by Austin. And they had their own ideas of how to develop the car and both of them had different tracks of development, but both were very successful in the cars and delivered championships. So you, you, you as you say, you, you, you joined ProDrive in, in 89, Paul, that's correct, isn't yeah. it? 
Yeah. So, yeah. And you found yourself working right away on the M3, didn't you? Oh, uh, yeah, no, it's, uh, I think the first uh, the first job, yeah, it was a very small team then. There was five people, people like Chris Dale, who lives over in Ireland, and Simon Steele, and a few of a few of the lads who've been around the game a long time. Uh, and the first job was a Corsica test car, getting that ready to go to Corsica test. Uh, then it wasn't like these big factory, well, like you run a big factory team now is five people to build a car, and da, da, da. it was, you, you worked a lot on your own. And Pro Drive was unique then because one week you'd do a, a rally car, the next week you might be doing a race car, a 24 hour race car, or you might be out on a recce, you know, so on your own, just operating anywhere in Europe. Uh, at that year, we did French Championship, Belgium Championship, Open World Championship with Mark Duez, four rounds with Mark, starting with did Monte Carlo, Portugal. Finland, San Remo, so that's only four. But. So Mark was in the FINA car, and then Belgium Championship, he was there in the FINA car. And then two cars in the, in the Tarmac Championship uh, in France, the French Tarmac Championship, which is phenomenally competitive. Mm-hmm. And then prior to that, the Italian Championship with Andrea Zanussi, uh, which he won. So, yeah, there's, there's quite a lot of development going on. Uh, I think then it was coming to the end of its what you can add to an M3 obligation uh, and ProDrive had its sights on, on bigger bigger things. But um, so we had the concept of the six-speed gearbox and a few of the small updates to the car. But predominantly the engines would come from BMW Motorsport uh, as a package. Mm-hmm. Uh, transmissions and all sub-assemblies are all done in-house. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was a very simple car to build. You could build one very quick. Right, so. Going back briefly to, to, to the beginning, I mean, were you aware of the amount of development, painstaking development work that had been undertaken in the years prior to your joining and, and also how significant uh, a deal it was for ProDrive as a company, you know, coming off the back of what must have been quite a, a bruising Group B dalliance with the Metro? Uh, ProDrive always a spirit of winning, no matter what. Uh, I think the base car, if you look at the homologation and the, and the base car, E30 race car, I mean, there's probably over hundreds in the European touring car scene. Uh, BMW was a, a massive production machine, so there's lots of teams, so that's why the engine becomes so bulletproof. Uh, the, the, the development was more of the reliability, I would imagine, like most rally development programs. So uh, the car was very simple. Uh, it was normally with a rally car. If you pick all the best five components to build it, you'll have a reliable car. So it had, it had AP brakes, it had Bellstein suspension, it had Motronic electronics, uh, it had Premier fuel systems, it had Bosch pumps. Uh, so it was so simple and, and unique. Uh, if you compare it with today's demand of a rally car, it was completely different. Mm-hmm. Completely different. Uh, the base model was so close to being right. But yeah, you're aware because it's a winning team and very well structured and the parts are really well made and you very rarely see any failures. Uh, so uh, there's, a, there's a lot gone on, a lot of learning. If you look back on the history, I'm doing some work on the moment on, 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 on a lot of our early cars. And um, yeah, there was some learning pain from Circuit of Ireland with both cars stopping early in the stages. Is that uh, a fuel issue? Well, it's, it, it, I, I think, I don't know, some of the listeners, some people who was close on the day, I, I've still got the original documents from the debrief. We've still got them <laughs> in our archive. And I, re, I was only reading them last week when you asked me about this interview and it just never come to a conclusion. Oh, really? <laughs> really? Yeah. It was a mixture of, you know, Charles Reynolds was the team manager then, and Charles was an incredibly structured, detailed man. And if you read a Charles document, it covers absolutely everything. But I got to the end of it and thought, well, maybe that was one of five things. Maybe somebody mm. knows somewhere, but, uh, yeah, there was. it could have been fuel pickup. It could have been electronics. Mm. Who knows? There's all sorts of mystery. But the cars did start up, I believe, afterwards and never appeared again. Yeah, well, they quite quite swiftly became as far as Group A rally cars could be fairly Swiss watch, Swiss watch reliable, didn't they? Um, yeah. You know, by certainly by the time you joined, I imagine it was 
par for the course that bomb-proof reliability is maybe not a given, but certainly expected. Well, yeah, I mean, on a recce, if you're doing a practice, and we were practicing with full group air cars then, so they're doing three times a mile. These rallies weren't short then, and service, you'd service before and after every stage anyway, uh, but you, you were servicing in five minutes and ten minutes. So uh, having, you know, like they have service parks now and you get 45 minutes, is pretty well unheard of. An end-of-leg service in the French Championship would be 20 minutes. In Belgium... You know, you're struggling for three or four minutes at the end of each stage. It was, it, and so you had to be completely reliable. Uh, again, as we say, a bit Swiss watch. There was some things to look at. You know, there's a, you know, if you didn't replace the rear diff studs, the rear diff would drop out. You had to do them every rally. You know, Austin will tell you that. that's what happened in Kalani. Uh, so there's a few things were stressed to the to the edge, and you know, you maybe would have looked at it a bit differently with today's technology. There is a, a Bernard Begun quote um, that only the engine was in Munich by the time from from Munich, sorry, by the time he got in the car. So presumably, you guys must have done quite a lot of in-house development and fine tuning and and changing components to get to that ultimate package. Yeah, there was lots of local, you know, there's lots of local companies involved. As you work with, you know, the people like Dockins for radiators and would be, you know, would be fabric. It was at a time when ProDrive was growing. There's probably only two or three people in the fabrication department. There was three people in sub-assembly. There was one wiring guy, you know. So uh, I suppose when you've got a smaller team like that, uh, the, the quality does go up quite a bit because there's a lot there is a lot of ownership you know mm. you get you get to work with people it doesn't want to be your bit that fails and that's what makes a good team sure name above uh, the door yeah yeah so uh, I, I keep saying it you can't believe how simple an entry is I can picture it in my mind there's nothing to them you know uh, I think the biggest development that year was like I said the Gatrag uh, 265 gearbox which was in the Manta 400 as you know but uh, different uh, had a, still had a donut drive on he had a donut drive on the back uh, we did a six speed dog box which was uh, an adaption of a sandwich plate and uh, extract gears you know an extract was very small and it wasn't a massive gear conglomerate it is of today you know it was a small operation so it was growing like pro drive was so there's a few teething problems with new tech with fusion welding on gears, but there's, there's a few things what what you know we had some transmission failures, mm-hmm. but that got cured fairly early on. And then later on it went the, the Achilles heel was a crown wheel and pinion, but we were then homologated the seven seven series rear diff, which really made it completely bomb proof. That's fascinating, purely because, I mean, Killian, in, in researching this, dug up uh, a fascinating period uh, article from 1987 with the cars in the lead, you know, an interview with, uh, with, with David Richards in the lead up to 1987. Uh, and in it, they are sort of pinpointed the, the differential as being a perhaps area, or David Lapworth, rather, uh, a perhaps yeah. area of concern. Uh, and, and they weren't quite sure about it, you know, being as it's before Tour de Course 1987. But it's interesting yeah. as that... that evidently came to pass yeah it's the last fuse before the, the you know it's the last fuse of talking so it's it's taking a massive amount of load hence why a Cosmo sierra standard is seven inch and, and rally's nine inch mm-hmm. <laughs> you know a differential so once that was in uh but you know we're well versed as a team then you know we could probably do a rear diff change in in seven minutes we could do a gearbox in about 10 minutes so not a clutch but a box because there's not a lot holding it in so uh yeah yeah and that's why you do the sport in it to the mm-hmm. mechanics want to be have their moment as much as the drivers do and what was the main driving force to pull the the get drag 265 and replace it with the six-speed unit what was the was the main motivation there probably because it's quite lazy on its gear change for sure um uh, a dog engagement is always quicker and torque transfers a lot better so uh, it's, uh, it wanted shorter ratios lower down as well it's quite long in its lower ratios uh, so it's just a, a good tidy up of all the all ratios and giving it that i think it was about seven i can't remember the number but it was giving it that little bit more top end as well because the rallies were so fast then you know so it was it was matching the box to the engine 
bearing in mind the box was designed for a 230 horsepower engine. And, it's a free, and, and, and the ratios were then matched to a 300 horsepower unit. Does that make sense? Absolutely, yeah. Sure does. I imagine uh, quite uh, the, the suspension was one of the, the key area of development compared to the the road car, sorry, the circuit races. Was yeah. that something that you had any uh, any control over at the time? No, no, it, it was very, you know, in pro drive then, you know, you 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 know, the, the spec sheet was the Bible. My words, you know, I, Ian Morton uh, was like the chief, McCat chief thing. It's a bit same how it is now. We, mm -hmm. We're very, you do not vary from the spec sheet. And to be honest, uh, I've seen it so many times through release of customers of all the models we've ever built. People will find better ways and, and they might find something you've, you've spent millions on trying to develop and they might find something you've missed, which is welcome. But nine times out of 10, what it says on the tin, it, it's been done through, through, through years of experience and different roads and different drivers. And, you know, learning is painful in motorsport if you get it wrong. Mm. Yeah, if you get you can go to a rally and get a setup wrong and it costs you a world championship or it costs you a, a European championship and they're big decisions to make so then they really control the spec and to be honest I never saw much ever change I can still remember the rear toe figure the front toe figure the cambers the caster I mean it's always a unique car to drive and a lot of the Irish drivers would, would learn that very quickly on the camber roads because it had 10 degrees of caster. Mm -hmm. So it was a, in no power steering, it was a man's car. Mm -hmm. You know, you had to be hold of it. And I think that's why Austin and uh, Bertie did so well. Coming from the Mantas, they were quite a man's car to drive, you know, with no power steering and, and uh, quite a lot of Ackerman. And so uh, the, the numbers have never changed that much. Uh, the damper settings, again, has never changed that much. The, the, the you know then there was some weight saving going to turnium springs and things like this which slightly changed but the valving of the damping where now you'll hear everyone on every single rally or any driver who's any driver will be talking about valving on dampers yeah <laughs> well then you'd go no that wasn't part of the conversation mm -hmm. the car works the car was consistent and it did what it said and that's what allowed the drivers the to uh, know its traits so it fit them like a glove for mm -hmm. sure you know ride out could be a big you know is always a, a cheap way of, of making a car feel feel more stable stuff like that in, in, in French championship but yeah well, are you 10 mil down in France and 15 mil up in Ireland yes <laughs> yeah exactly yeah, yeah. Uh, there's some basic things you do but what we do know about a BMW was if you started playing with the geometry too much, it just, it, 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 uh, it, uh, it, it ruined the car. It so it was quite a sort of narrow window in which to operate in that respect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, if, you, if you didn't spend a lot of time and maybe some of the lads who were listening were involved then, you know, if you didn't, if you didn't have the caster exactly right, you know, the, 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 uh, you know, someone says something feels just not right at the front. And, you know, there'll the, be them feelings that get back of you, which is a bit like a doctor's pill for the headache. But you, if you just go and check them, check them three things first, you might, you'll probably stumble across the fix pretty quick. It's not going to be something drastic, mm. you know. People talk about body shells and da, 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 da. <laughs> no, it'll be something, it'll be something simple. Speaking of body shells, would I be right in saying that the, the shells that arrived at ProDrive were the matter-prepared ones that were originally touring car shells, essentially, before um, you guys got your hands on them? No, no, you, you could order, yeah, some cars would, it depend on the order. The, the, it's a couple of tubes, uh, there's a cross tube on the touring car, there's, and there's, I think, can't remember exactly, but there's 24-hour shell, endurance shell, 24-hour race shell has an extra, two extra tubes. It has two X tubes in the rally car, uh, a, a British touring car or a European touring car. So one long tube, you'll see it on the TV across, and that would normally either been removed by matter, pre-us getting it, or or we'd have a race shell in stock and it it get removed. Uh, was that the one that was triangulated, sort of running behind the, the dashboard yeah. bulkhead sort of thing? 
Correct, yeah. And then on the on the 24-hour shells, there's one coming up from the right-hand side as well, which goes through to the left-hand turret top. They're very rare. They're, they were just for the 24-hour shells. Mm -hmm. uh, so Matter Germany, uh, again, they were so, the, the, I mean, the base shell as a body shell is so strong. Uh, it's very, very minimum amount of seam welding, but just in key places. So the front struts, binders on, on the side, you see that. They come with a pedal box in, which is a standard BMW motorsport pedal box. If you can still, if you get the BMW parts manual now, it's, you can still pick out most of the parts in there, all the wiring parts, all the dashboard parts. The, the Germans are so good at that detail. You know, if you've got a build book for a, for an M3, we have them. You, you can still look at it today and go, well, you know, you can still build a beautiful car from it. You know? I mean, you said uh, that wasn't the case with Austin Rover. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Wish it was, though. It's British. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Somebody maybe, maybe should have, you know. Then again, we built the Spitfire, didn't we? So how did we not get the Metro, right? Well, very yeah. true. <laughs> um, to return to the suspension for a second would you have said that the, the rear end like with the semi-trailing arm did that did that cause a bit of an issue in terms of setup for for the bumpier or the loose surface events you know obviously uh, this is a car meant for yeah, tracks rear, yeah rear squat and, and, and getting rear sure so keeping it simple getting bite in the rear i mean i, I remember doing a we're in finland Doing the shakedown. It was the days when only two of you got there with a the rally car and you just got the driver at the end of the day and went off and did a shakedown. Now they take 30 people or whatever. Yeah, we've all done it. Uh, and uh, <laughs> I think it was, it was, that was Dewey's driving. It was Finland and he did a 7K stage and the trip, because he used to read off the rear, was reading 14K and he had 7K wheel spin. Wow. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, you've all seen the films, uh, how spectacular it was. And uh, did the car do it? If, if you look at it in hindsight, maybe David Latworth or people said something different, but did it do enough, warrant enough gravel events to really focus and work on it and get it better? No, no, it did. San Remo, uh, which is half, Thousand Lakes. And a few customers did them on, run them on gravel, but you know it's, it's such a hard car to drive on gravel. Dewey's um, could sure pedal it on gravel. In fairness to him, he got some yeah. good results in that car. Fifth Who's in that? San Remo, right? Yeah, Dewey's. yeah, no. yeah. Do it. I think we're ninth. I think we're ninth. Yeah, we're ninth. Who's a bit? Was it ninth? I yeah. I thought it was a sixth at some point in San Remo. There was a sixth at some point. I think it mightn't have been San Remo, but I think he was sixth uh, on some gravel. Portugal. Event. Portugal. Portugal that's that was it. it. Yeah. Portugal. Yeah. That year, Portugal. Yeah. And uh, yeah. So the fog helped him there, I think. Mm. Uh, but, uh, but Mark was, uh, yeah, he, he's a good example of a driver who's grown up in Porsche's Group 4 Escorts. We should remember because we did have a man, so we should have remembered that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was going to say, it seems that weather seeming unwittingly played a key role in the 30 rally story because it was. Um, in, on the 1987 tour de course, am I correct? There was a hailstorm that that briefly denied you guys the lead. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, Mark was, yeah, yeah, no, he's right there. I think there was, there was four cars there, three cars, a three cars. But Mark, I mean, in Belgium, it was mighty, mighty, mm -hmm. and so was Gregoire uh, mm. the last year uh, with the Architel Bell car. Uh, but uh, Mark is such a, yeah, such a driver, such a driver. Yeah. Him and Patrick are the same. I don't know. Patrick's a bit more flamboyant, but Mark was could could really could turn it on when he wanted. Yeah. So the rear geometry was yeah. It could have been, it could have yeah. I'm sure there's things you could have done. It was a very simplistic toe and camber setting in the rear, which is a sliding piston. So the toe was a rose joint this way, which always holds the toe and then a the sliding thing. Then your minimum camber was about one and a half minutes you could get and it just neck out. Uh, yeah, and then yeah, the, the engine, I think the engine was the biggest thing. It's a tap, uh, which we learnt in Ireland in a big way. Uh, in the early days with Fisher, uh, were had to make the engines a lot more progressive. So uh, 
uh, you know, it's a, it is when we say P10, you know, P, it, the P10 engines, the last ones from motorsport. Yeah, we call them P because they have a P10 EPROM in the ECU. Mm -hmm. The rev limit is 9.8. And there's nothing, there's nothing happening before uh, six. Crikey. <laughs> so they're up I'm there. Compromising. Yeah, so they're up there a lot where you know, uh, uh, Austin, you know, recognised this very early on in Ireland. Just, just in the in the damp wet, he just didn't have the traction, and uh, you know worked very hard with Swindon to do a milder engine, which he got a lot more tractable, and so did and, and so did Bertie who worked with him to get uh, more drivability, more drivability. So then, then cars then from from as low as three thousand RPM, they were very they were just torque. They just didn't spin the wheels. You probably see that on a lot of the, if you watch the early videos and the later ones. Would you say that was one of the sort of the most significant developments over the lifespan of the car? Yeah, for, yeah, a customer, that's a good example of a customer taking a car, seeing what it needed for their environment. That customer being at a level which is up there, you know, uh, it's not, they are competitive and, and uh, you know, they're willing to take on the works drivers in their own environment. So, yeah, I think it was uh, with that I worked on, uh, on, uh, on gravel, probably, yes, 100%. Mm -hmm. you know? But there was no development, uh, as I understood it then, there was no development money from BMW from, you know, pro drivers. We're winning every rally in France, we're winning most rallies in Belgium. Uh, and we're winning British Touring Car Championships consistently. You can't get complacent, but mm. there's the answer, really. I mean, that was going to be one of my next questions. I've always been fascinated by what seems to be a fairly sort of not especially committed attitude from BMW, or at least a sort of undecided idea about you know this this muddy, grimy motorsport compared to their their usual fare. What, what was it like working with BMW in Munich? Or was it uh, I, in my role then? I, 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 I learned a lot when I worked with them on the mini program. Mm. You know, they're, they're, uh, but uh, that wasn't back then. I wouldn't know whether it, that'd be something for David or, or uh, I mean, we still got, they were very close to us on, you know, all the technical bulletins. They treat all their, their support teams the same. So you'd get, a, got books and books of technical bulletins that released that we release to our customers. Mm -hmm. So you'd always get that information. We're a key customer because all the engines would go back there. Uh, key client because the works car, like so the, the, the cars in Belgium were sponsored by BMW. They run the BMW Belgian banner. The cars in France run the French motorsport banner. So for example, uh, there'd always be a cocktail event which the cars would go to in France at BMW agents before the rally, hmm. you know? So, uh, as you know, there's many owners of success. There's not many owners of failure. So when I could say when, uh, when, the, when they win, everyone's, everyone's over the moon, but, mm -hmm. uh, I don't think it's no different than they are with anybody mm -hmm. having, you know, work with me in the mini one. There was a lot of things about mud on cars and all the rest of it, but, there wasn't any mud on the Corsica winning car, really, was there? Or... <laughs> you you realize you've just signed yourself up unwittingly for a, a follow up episode on the BMW Mini. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I guess it shows that, you know, BMW's attitude to what they wanted from that program, you know, they were at home on circuits. They wanted to dominate regional and national events on tarmac, and that's what they wanted from that. They didn't want to set out to be. In, you know, running a full World Rally Championship program, that's not what they wanted, really. I guess would that be fair to say? Uh, I, I, I've got to be honest, I wouldn't really know. I, I couldn't, uh, yeah, I, 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 yeah, it's probably a fair point. Uh, I mean, you've got to remember then BMW was winning everything. Mm. We were winning, uh, you know, in Europe. You know, they probably had a hundred cars out every weekend in in different touring car championships. Uh, some massive, some of the biggest European teams were running factory BMWs. So it's a unique situation where you end up with uh, a great car, a great product, and everyone's doing the marketing for you. And, you know, so it's only what, you know, pro drives and over many years is when the cars go out to customers' hands, 
you can have this weekend we've probably had i don't know probably 30 30 cars out worldwide racing and that's just in the racing it just that's just with aston martin program so you can have weekends where there's 50 or 60 cars out all pro drive cars uh promoting uh, the manufacturer you've developed the car for and uh, taking services from you well, some stuff were you aware of uh, a concerted effort to try and shed weight from the car over over its lifespan at the pro drive yeah we, pro drive is uh like most small sport teams we're fanatical about weight uh and uh even more that back then, you know, everyone knew everyone was fanatical about weight on 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 on, uh, on any rally car, whether it be right down to driver and co-driver. So, uh, but back the thing that back then there wasn't many championships where the cars weren't weighed after most stages. There's a lot, in my opinion, there's a lot more weighing going on then than there was not. Uh, what what sorry, what there is today. Uh, you know, I think I remember the first time they weighed cars in Ireland was like 98 or something. You know, so imagine, uh, but no, the homologation weight and fuel, fuel amount. And yeah, there's always the debate, no spare wheel, spare wheel. You know, then you had a lot of options not to run a spare wheel because you had a van before and after every stage. Uh, yeah, and David Lapworth is a, is a, is a, you know, and everyone was then, you're a fanatical about weight. Uh, it has to hit on negation dry weight. Uh, if you're not earning, then you couldn't achieve it without being in a position for ballast. Where car design now, you can you can you end up with a lot of ballast. Where then there's very little ballast. So um, over the, the two years, kind of between eighty seven and eighty nine, you guys managed to shed about a hundred kilos from the car. Would that be close enough to be accurate? Yeah, I think. Yeah, yeah, but if you look at not from it depends whose car you weigh, who come up with a number in the beginning, you know, and which cage it was for a start, you know, and, and which uh, a rally car morph it doesn't morph weight, it gains weight over a race car. It's, it's straightforward stuff, but whether it be the co driver's seat, foot plate, you know, we wouldn't even that back then if, if you know, the map. It was like to get a map box in a car, co-drivers were virtually crying to get anything put in the car. Uh, but then you got a, a lightweight jack. Uh, you gain on the fuel side because you're not, you've mm. not got a 140 litre race endurance tank. You've just got a 60 litre tank. Uh, but could you take, were, was there attention to detail in every build of every nut and bolt went in the car? Yes. I've seen reports that, you know, the, obviously, you know, again, in all motorsport, extensive uses of aluminium with things like the bonnet hinge mechanism being replaced yeah. for an aluminium item. The pedal box ended up going to aluminium items. Um, yeah. You know, so those kind of measures are obviously right across the yeah. board. Yeah, well, uh, you know, there's certain things you just draw a line off. You know, I don't think there's uh, the brave boys who would, you know, do a aluminium pedals. Yes, because the form then can be made nicely. Uh, but you know, was it was the titanium pedal box frames tried? Was the was the different you know minimum weight seat runners best weight seats? You can remember then it was a time when seats were a lot lighter than they are today. Mm-hmm. You know, the, a, a lightweight Recaro was a lightweight Recaro. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and when you think of the safety extent you got, we go to now with the weight of a seat. Uh, there the, wouldn't be a tool roll in the car because this service at the end of the stage. Uh, there'd be a lot of small details which are missed, which would be focused on to make sure it was come off, it could come off the stage and it would pass a pass a pass a, a, a weight check. But did we? It was the if you're asking if the a shell was a detailed list of tidying to do when a shell came in, but there wasn't any, you know, like. Today, not any world rally car engineer will tell you they, they build a shell from flat pack. They focus, you know, they, 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 they work so hard. That's why the FIA weigh the shells at the factories first, a base shell for a road car to stop you getting ahead that way. 
So the biggest weight probably, so it's a plastic boot lid, for example, you know, there's no weight to be gone there and all bumper inners and everything are all white and so all that sort of detail. Mm-hmm. I suppose also there was a there was there was a lot more skullduggery going on back then, or at least there appeared to be more skullduggery going on there. <laughs> uh, at least you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, there wasn't much weight in the exhaust as you can imagine. There <laughs> <laughs> uh, wasn't, uh, but like for example, you know, we'd run, we'd run in, in the rear drive shaft inners. There's six bolts normally on each side. We'd run free and and free drive pegs. Not because, it, yeah, it's lighter, but yeah, main point is we only have to do undo three, not six. You know, so uh, there was there was things like that. Uh, I can't. Yeah, it was on weight. It was on weight. There's lots of Lancia would. Yeah, I suppose lots of people are doing lots of other things. So, so that minute. Were you aware at the time of of the sort of of being? An underdog, at least compared to, to Lancia, and was it a, a point of pride of you know punching above your weight as a team and and for BMW? Um, yeah, I think you used to look at Lancia and think, well, you know, I mean, in awe, mm. you know, and sometimes you'd look at the, the amount of people and equipment and everything. But I mean, it, it's Goliath answering it. You, 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 everybody's beatable, including yourself. You can beat yourself by not being smart. So. Uh, it was a very proud team to work for. Everyone was very proud, uh, you know. Uh, you know, just small detail. Like always, the vans are always clean, and your expenses are always done on time, and everything. You know, people laugh at me now, saying, "You know, you know, they miss when the lead pro drive reversing into your parking space because it's that's what you do." You know, so uh, looking at Lancia. Yeah, and then Toyota were about then. They're a massive organisation, but uh, yeah, there's a massive pride in in in, uh, in taking taking them on and, and beating them. But they they took this this off. They took it very serious. They knew they knew they were they knew the BMW was a big threat to uh, beat them on the day, which it could. And how many was- people were in ProDrive at the time compared to? today just to give us an idea of the kind of the, the growth of the organization in the last 30 odd uh, years so i was employee number 34 uh, and then in the workshops then i think there was eight of us and there was three senior technicians they were the like the guys like pete ollie had worked with david at ford at rothman at ford uh, dick goodman was at talbot ian morton was at talbot david lapworth was ex-talbot and then the other couple of the lads were exhausting Rover. There wasn't, yeah, and that was a team which was doing touring cars and things. There's probably eight of us in the workshop, very small team. Uh, then, then the sales operation had just really started. Me and Perry was there with David and a few people in stores. Uh, it was just like, to be honest, it was like a family garage. People, people, people listening to work in a garage, they know you're going to have the crack at the store's counter. It's a bit like that. <laughs> so now, colossal, you know, it grew into, you know, into thousands, you know, thousands, you know, lots of people across lots of parts of the business, whether it be the automotive business, the racing, uh, the yeah, racing team was a big, big operation. The rally team was a big operation. It was nearly a hundred people. You know, it's a, it's a bit, a big, big machine to turn up to. So, and then compare with today. Uh, it it ebbs and flows. It, it goes up and down as the programs change. Uh, so uh, when we've started the side of the World Endurance Team, which stopped last year, but then we've got a massive customer operation with support. So in the workshops now, there's probably thirty five people. We've we've got probably ten designers, fifteen event engineers, and then all the stuff that comes on top of that stores people which are as important fabricators engine group probably total cross engine group 15 people fabrication 10 people mm-hmm. so it's still a big it is it's a colossal it's yeah it's a lot it's a big it's a big machine a big machine i was lucky enough to be uh, to be shown around for, for writing a feature article last year and yeah the size and the scale of the place it's just staggering someone who well, i don't know what i expected really given i've sort of followed Pro drive since the, the <clears throat> early nineties, but my God, yeah, every base yeah. covered. 
yeah, yeah. Uh, it's great yeah, with that, that new site. You know, we did that in the middle of an hectic program. You know, we did it in around six or eight months to get that place knocked up, but still run the races and do everything and move the factory and clear out from the old factory. Uh, yeah, but that's part of the adventure, isn't it? Absolutely. And I suspect this is kind of an, an obvious question with an obvious answer, but how, how key was the E30 to ProDrive's you know, evolution in the immediate years afterward? You know, the Subaru deal, was, was your success you'd had with that a key part of what convinced, you know, the yeah. top brass at Subaru to... Yeah. to... Well, I think when any manufacturers, AA, what I'd imagine back then was the credentials, you can go and win at world championship level with this... With this this team of uh, can-do, very focused attitude, which is very much in Japanese culture. Uh, uh, but again, when you when you when we all of a sudden you go from being the one chasing you know an odd win now and again, then when you're trying to chase twelve wins every year, uh, it, <laughs> it becomes a different animal. But um, I would imagine uh, it paid, it, it, you know, it, it got it got it over the line. And uh, you know, and and you know, I'm really grateful they did because I've had a you know fantastic 20 years since that when that that started, or 25 years when we started with that. So uh, yeah, yeah, the credentials were there. You can't. It's like going for a job, isn't it? You get if you're nothing on your CV, it's going to be quite a short interview if you get an interview. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So, you can only yeah. fluff so much. Yeah, yeah. One Corsica, and you know we're constantly, you know, we're constantly matching people in the top ten of the world championship. Our ambition is to be world champions. Then uh, it definitely, I'd imagine, well, it definitely fit the, the the Japanese culture of underdog, fight it through, and uh, deliver. Did you have any? Uh... Any sort of special rivalry, rivalry with Ford at the time, bearing in mind it was another rear-wheel drive front engine thing, even if it was, you know, a, a turbo as opposed to an NA car? Yeah, uh, because of that, there was Ford Borum mm-hmm. and there was RED. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there was the, the scouts, the, the boys from Liverpool, should I say. But they, uh, an RED were doing with Oriole in the, in the French Championship. Mm. Uh, and, then, and then at RED, then there was people like John Millington, uh, Alan McGuinness. A lot of lads who've we've you know gone on to work with and, and got great great respect for. So I used to do the recce's in France and Millie would do the recce's as well and we'd do the notes for where to stop to service and you know I just just great camaraderie. So Borum were a bit different. They're uh, mm. you know they were a completely different culture. Essex you know a different gang different gang. Uh, but I think it was always another bunch of Brits against another against everyone else again so i think that there's mutual respect but yeah would you would you would you give in over a layby because you wanted it serviced no <laughs> <laughs> wouldn't extend that far no 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 and if you're racing a van back you're going to get back you know you're going to get there so uh yeah yeah so uh yeah it's it's uh it's uh you've got to respect for your opposition haven't you uh, but you've also got to be willing to beat them any way you can. It sounds like it was like a real sweet spot in terms of the, the, the championship and, and your involvement in it, in terms of it being professional enough to be all over the world and be followed, but still, you know, low-key enough for that kind of sort of yeah. rivalry and, and friendliness to still take part, to still, oh. still be a part. Yeah, yeah. I mean, everyone everyone thinks the past was always better than the future, doesn't it? But I mean... Yeah, to grow up, to, to get, you know, to be exposed to, you don't think for yourself too much, what well, you do if you, if it depends on your job, but everything's quite well structured in this world we live in, isn't it? You know, even you can't go to a car park without paying at the meeting. You, there's lots of stuff which is so controlled. Then, fortunately enough, uh, you had to think for yourself and uh, that, that was really enjoyable uh, because you would... You would take chances, and you would, you would push to the, you know, you you give it that bit more, and uh, with with the consequence just being the result. Where now, if it's not, a, everything's watching you now, isn't it? You know, what I mean, and 
you can imagine now if you pulled in, in, in doing some servicing, you'd be on social media in a split second. Before they're out of the car. Yeah. I mean, oh, you know, it's just not how it was. And then everything comes with how organised you are. And ProDrive back then were phenomenally organised. People like Charles Reynolds and a lot of the lads then, you know, they they were very well. I mean, unbelievably experienced people. They'd been around the block a long time. You know, and uh, for example, ProDrive used to assist Lancia uh, with, co- with, with the lads co-driving their, co-driving their team round when they come over to the RAC. <laughs> That's incredible. You know, so some lads would go with them and, and you know, because, uh, you know, David had worked a lot. With, you know, they just, everyone knew everybody and... Uh, You've got to use the tools. You, you, you've got to use any tools. So you go to Africa, you need good contacts in Africa. If you go to Italy, everyone, you build this network of people within teams and within countries that, which can assist you get your, to get your goal. You know, uh, and then if somebody was really struggling, then you would never turn your back on them. If, if they are, say, you know, one of the van, their van broke down or something, you'd always stop to see if you could... I've got a great picture somewhere where the van brought down, I had the rally car on the back, an RED stopped in France, and we put the van and the trailer on their transporter. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you've got a Ford Motor Company on top and you've got a BMW on the back. But you, you know, yeah, can you that's, that's respect and camaraderie. That's just like helping your next man out, you know, so... Uh, if you did that these days, the marketing men of either side oh. would have a, would have a fit, wouldn't they? <laughs> well, you just watch the plavers in, in in Formula One to understand that you know. Uh, but that, that that's what I mean. But if you ask about the camaraderie with the teams, yeah, strong respect. But we uh, and everyone could look each other in the eye and know if they needed help, you'd do it. But if you wanted to win, they, they knew you were going to do anything to win as well. I suppose also with the nature of when it was, there were a lot of a lot of the guys working in all these teams had had sort of earned their crust in the early Group Four era and had been there for twenty years since the you know the, the mid seventies or whatever, yeah. and therefore had yeah. huge amounts of experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then you didn't, you know, then because then you look at a colossal service park where nobody will, will you know touch a finger on the car until the engineers done the job list and the, you know it's all very 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 structured and we're very similar but then there's just two of you end the stage if it's got a misfire you better fix it if it needs a gearbox you better put it in and you better you have to make a decision yeah and it's quite strange then decision making nine times out of ten you do make the right one you know uh but now yeah so uh and which give you a lot of reward as well and and the people you work with, you learn to be like really more co- you know, like cohesive. So everyone has strengths in the team. So when when teams are so small like that, you do find out who's the best guy to do certain things and who's not, you know, and and, and then so the leader of the team can just float them around and, and get the best outcome. Great time to experience, no doubt. And and like you know, for you as well, then to be part of something that was kind of starting to flourish and grow. And then as group A advanced, it must have been a great um great time for your career and to be part of that journey uh oh phenomenal uh, so yeah so we're still doing bmws uh, when legacy started running so for example when we went to acropolis i think we finished yeah i, came, I, I was I literally came to Bam, back to banbury changed vehicles and back out to greece would that be the one with with alan in the legacy yeah ah, yeah and uh, and then you know straight out to that, and I remember the shakedown there was me. There's three of us, yeah, uh, three or four of us. That was all there was for the shakedown. And Marku went off second corner into the stage or whatever. So uh, again, massive learning, unbelievable amount of learning for a team. Uh, do Acropolis, which is, I mean, Greece is a phenomenal event to do. It's, it's it's in you know it's in June and summer's Greece. The, the stages are incredible and the, the place has a real challenge about it. And my words, the end of a end of a stage, 
you know you're going to do one hell of a job to keep it going. Mm-hmm. So started that rally, and we got three days in, and then we retired. Uh, and the Tarzan stage, which is a well-known stage, and then went on to Thousand Lakes and San Remo, but still doing all the BM- French Championship mm-hmm. the BMWs. Uh, and then after that, uh, the story really begins the year after. Car got paced, drivers got paced, could have won earlier possibly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, leading into the mega customer era with legacies, which was phenomenal, uh, especially in Ireland. Uh, some Kenny was first recipient of a great mm-hmm. car. Yeah. And then... 30 followed, and then how many hundreds after that? You know, yep. the World Rally Car era. Uh, but uh, and the Impreza was a, uh, yeah, another phenomenal story. I was heavily involved in the customer side then, and, and you know, we'd, we'd run. And a lot of lads from Ireland used to come, Robbie McGurk, Wesley Emersonian, Bishop, quite Ian Kerland, quite a few others used to come to Indonesia. I mean, a lot we used to run five cars in Indonesia. Okay. Of the Asia Pacific, would that be? Uh, no, it was for, just for the national championship for locals. So what? Yeah, so we 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 put six or seven impresses into Indonesia, uh, sales wise, and they were doing the national championship and doing Australia. So the Asia Pacific at the time, it, it was yeah, it was still that was running as well. So that was Malaysia, Hong Kong, Beijing. Uh, Hong Kong, Beijing, and the legacy. I can't remember. We did. Mm. No, I think was, I recall yeah. that. Yeah. 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 Ari and Posterman. Uh, mm. won, I think. Yeah. I think Posterman won. Uh, and then we did it the yes. following year with Impressors. Well, it was around this time that you managed to, con- and, and I realize why I'm straying away from the BMW here, but am I correct in saying you, you managed to convince uh, Japan to let, you know, ProDrive do the engine development in house for the legacy? Yeah, I think David Latworth and David had convinced that was yeah uh, about a year. No, yeah, probably for no, if it's Sam Remo was the first time we run our, mm. or RAC. No, I think it was RAC was the first time. I've heard that was um, quite a watershed moment. It was because the guy who I used to work with a lot on, on BMWs, uh, Bill King, uh, he was ex, he was from Andy Rouse and he'd been around forever, uh, and he was. Uh, he was a, just an incredibly talented mechanic. So he started doing the engine, because he was doing, he used to do Rouse's engines for the Touring Car Championship, the RS500s. Mm-hmm. So he started them and there were some engineers, we recruited quite a few more engineers who were learning as well. But uh, we had a lot, a lot of calibration engineers come from Japan, but then we had our own calibration engineers who were learning and going along. So then the engine group grew colossal then into a, into a, a joint JC where you know Japan had their own dinos and they were doing a lot of development. It was all it was very well structured. One of the strongest parts was the engine development program was so well structured because it was really it, it, it got people involved who really want were so proud to get the engine to the level to get the boxer engine where they got it and and the proof is in the pudding. Mm-hmm. You know it, it came so reliable and went on and on and on and reliability was so you've got your Achilles heels with any cars or any development but once they were fixed it just went on and on to the uh, yeah you weren't worried about the engine when you started the rally yeah. so the engine shop there was two dyno cells probably 35 people in at the height mm-hmm. seven engineers would, would height have been mid late 90s I assume yeah yeah because then we would obviously all customer engines came back to the factory, uh, and then you're doing customer programs. Remember in All Stars, then I was running up to ten cars on World Championship events in All Stars, uh, and mileages were a lot higher then. So you know the customer side, you'd probably have any one time per week, you'd have five customer engines in on a cycle. Uh, so yeah, I mean. Uh, and, and a development program and a works program, so hence why it grew. It was a big, it was a big department. It was a big department. Yeah, uh, and still today the engine group is. We do all the Aston engines. We do the Dakar engines. Uh, we did all 
you know, to give you some idea of uh, capability, when we did RX three years ago, in nine months, they, they, they uh, designed, and drew, uh, designed, released, and developed a complete new engine. It's certainly so, impressive. <laughs> so it gives you the scope of skill, what's in there. And that's, and, and that's where guys are still in there who were there 20 years ago. You mm -hmm. know, again, uh, you can't, there's no shortcuts to that experience. Uh, whether it be the lads building them uh, or, the, uh, or, the, or the design team. No. Sounds like as a company, you're quite, you're quite good at, at sort of building that expertise and retaining it in the company. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I expect you know a lot of people. You know, with a long service is is quite a thing, and it's quite a proud thing for people who've been there. And it, you can either be, I think, in a team. I always tell people either be become the best mechanic or the best electrician or whatever. Or if you've got other ambitions, become the best in that job, and the next door will open. So there's people who want to move on into management, and they want to take on as much responsibility. And there's there's never a shortage of them jobs. People who really want to take it, but you know it comes with a massive. You need to really commit to responsibility, uh, and it's 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 ideal for a, an organisation. For example, the Dakar car. In COVID, we we completely developed that car. So, in November, it was agreed we were doing Dakar the year after. So the design team had been working on it for a while, but we didn't know if, which concept we're going to go with. COVID started. So we've been to Dakar, designed and dubbed a car in that first year of COVID, built it, and was in Dubai testing in, in, uh, in a year later. And then two months later, uh, eight weeks, no, six weeks later, we're starting Dakar, the two-car team. Am I right in saying there was a change in uh, regulated uh, wheel diameter between one of those Dakar seasons as well, which must have put a spanner in the works as far as suspension development, or at least an extra stumbling block? Uh, no, we'd really needed it for the mm. tyre. So we really needed it. Uh, and it was, you know, you come back from every event with a bit of a wash-up or a big wash-up of what could have been, you know, the biggest factor was punches. Mm -hmm. uh, and... You just know when you start a section in the car, you, you even on the test, you can sit there, yeah, we're going to get a punch here. We just so that the, the durability of the tyre wasn't there. Uh, and the, the other class cars had that advantage. So we needed to level that up. Uh, and, you know, the track width give other advantages as well. Uh, mm -hmm. So it's a massive piece of kit. That people don't realise how big a deck of car is to get up to it. Remembering it's got a 500 litre fuel tank in it. Yeah. They're, they're a big thing. They're a big thing. But yeah, they're amazing in the desert. You'd mm -hmm. think you're in a you'd think you was in a small rally car. I love the how they've developed over the years. You can see trace a line between you know the stuff that you guys are doing now and those like uh revolutionally Schlesser buggies yeah. from 20 years ago, you know, the Galois sponsored things. Yeah. Awesome bits of kit. Yeah. And full respect for it for them boys who go out there and do it. It's it's uh it's a it's a it's a colossal colossal event, and it's it's again it's something you learn you you're always learning something new all the time, and, and there was some you know we learned some big lessons there, and we continue to do so. But hopefully the boys can you know open the the wind's going to come, mm. you know. Uh, uh, there is an element of luck. Uh, there is an element of making your own luck. Uh, but if you can have a clean run and uh, hit just so hit the waypoints, get a clean scorecard, then uh, you're gonna you're gonna be right up there. Before we close up, Paul, uh, to close the chapter on DM3 before we start to run into Sorry. the end. No, you're fine. Uh, and uh, and I could t talk early Group A Subarus for hours. Um, <laughs> if we want to follow that <laughs> chapter right through, um, I, I'll ask you: Are you brave enough to say who who, in your opinion? Could extract the most from the M3 on on the stages in your experience. Is that too too undiplomatic a question to answer? No, because I, I can answer it really honestly. I, I mean, I would answer it is uh, you 
and it might be, so I'm sure you're going to say that. You couldn't pick one person out, and I'll tell you for why, because each person in different environments could get the best out of it. So, uh, example, Chateau could get the best out of an entry in, 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 in France. And Begwin in his day could as well. Duez in low grip mm. could get the mm -hmm. best out of an entry. Yeah. yeah? Mm -hmm. Snyers in tricky conditions, high grip could get the best out of an entry. Uh, so Gregoire de Mavis was the same because he'd grown up in, uh, in Belgium, you know, he could get so much out of that car in low grip against Toyota four wheel drive. Big muddy Flanders cuts and that kind mm. of thing. Yeah, yeah, they were, you know, if you do Bruder's Spa in the middle of winter, you know, and they do the camel stage on gravel tyres normally, you know, you'd think, oh, you get absolutely annihilated by the Toyota, but, you know, they, they seem somehow to be able to, 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 to still come out of that stage in a position to try and win the rally. You know, so uh, Ireland, you know, always a question, Bertie or Austin, or you know, it's like I think it's it's, it's this, and it's, it's it's that could spark a lively debate. I, I, I was going to say that one. Yeah. You're a braver man of me if you than me if you're touching that with a barge form. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but uh, yeah, I know it's, say, it's the answer I, I kind of expected because you can view all these guys in their own environment and element, and it, it, it there isn't one guy, but you can see it's amazing to watch these guys take something to a different environment excel at it there and then you, you see these guys right at home somewhere else and it's yeah. always interesting to see that too yeah i mean you couldn't see you try and find a film with uh with uh, uh or begwin in oversteer you're going to struggle mm -hmm. mark do as you're going to find every bit of film you want yeah uh, and then patrick you're going to find every bit of film you want so there's a big difference straight away mm-hmm so uh, and it showed in the in the tie condition at the end of the stage and you know so uh, they were probably ahead of the time. So the the modern driver now is fairly straight down the road as much as possible. So uh, and and maybe that come from the, them knowing how to get the best time out of the car. Well, Mark certainly gave us that impression because we, when we were talking to him when he first made the transition to four-wheel drive, he really bemoaned the lack of, as he put it, the show <laughs> of, mm. a, of a rear-wheel drive car on the stages. And he, he certainly seemed to favour something yeah. with the drives to the rear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, so we'll leave that bit of the book at that bit. Yeah. Um, and before we wrap up, I suppose we just said you, you were at Goodwood not so long ago driving an, an escort. RS 1600. Is oh, that, yeah. that your own yeah. care? No, no, it's a, it's a, it's a guy called uh, Steve Rimmer. He's got a big collection of cars. Ah, yes, the yeah. Dirtfish chap. Yeah, so yeah. I, I've driven that car a few times, actually. I drove it there about three or four years ago. Steve very kindly lets me drive some of his cars. I've driven his Legacy there, and uh, he's got a Mark II as well. I've driven that. Uh, he's a great he's a great guy, and uh, I'm very appreciated. I mean, love escorts. They just can't, <laughs> yeah. They just uh, they just good fun. But now it's, it's a nice weekend. Last year I drove the Burns as World Rally Car on the Hill. Mm -hmm. That must that have been special. Yeah, yeah. Because I've done it three years before another anniversary, but uh, that's still a beautiful car. Even Safari trim on tarmac, you know, on there to drive that. Uh, and I did, uh, yeah, Shelby Walsh with that same year because it was the anniversary of the championship. But that, that, that car's one of the most original ones in the world. Yes, I saw you going up Chelsea last year and that, I think. I was there yeah. for that, so yeah. yeah. Get about Anniversary. yeah. <laughs> Anniversaries keep on coming, don't they? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I don't think I'll be around for the 50. <laughs> so, I'll get to the 51 and see if I can just about get in one and drive it. That good <laughs> was a, yeah. I, again, Goodwood's, yeah, I did a thing down there where I remember going there for the first time. I think it was. I think we went there first time in uh, nineteen, I don't know, really early on before we signed Petter. So that'd be ninety nine mm. or two thousand. Mm -hmm. And that top car park was just a Subaru truck and a couple of rally cars. Was that and, the shootout with McRae? Or was that two thousand? Uh, two thousand a lot later. That so I, I sat. That was the last time I sat with Colin there. 
Mm. Uh, he, he came and drove the S12, I think he drove mm. that. Uh, but no, that was really just before, yeah, 99 it would have been. And it just shows mm. how big that, how colossal that event has grown now. It's unbelievable. Mm. Yeah, it's a monster. Yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a real privilege to be get to go there and you know to see everything and see a lot of people. You, you, you always go there and see people you haven't seen for thirty years or. You know, but, yeah. I mean, speaking of a privilege, Paul, thanks so much for for coming on, and giving us so much of your time. It's been genuinely, genuinely brilliant. Um, we'll have to get you back if that's okay. No, no problem, no problem. If you, and if you just let me know what you want to. Uh, what you want to talk oh, there's, there's heaps of stuff we could tease out of you, Paul. I'm sure you started wandering into one of my favorite subjects there now with early Group A legacies now, but we might have to save that one. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we'll, we'll talk about it again sometime. We'll I want to know about, about the bumpy bit in the Impreza WRC 97's rev range. <laughs> What's that? The, 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 the infamous bumpy bit in the 97 Impreza that caused Colin quite a bit of consternation. In, oh. that, in that first year. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. And then World Rally Cars, then that, that car, 97, 90, you know, them cars. Wow. It's magic, magic. Fit you like a glove to drive. The, every advantage of the legacy went into the impress, you know, vice versa. So every advantage kept going. And then time you got to a, you know, a 99 car, they were. They were, you know, they were group for escort, but four-wheel drive. Yeah. They're, they're tremendous, tremendous cars, tremendous. We're restoring one at the moment for a client, and uh, I, I just, I can't wait to shake it down because it, 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 it just does everything it says on the tin, you know. And I, I'm staggered how where, where the market's gone with them, you know. I can see why people want a Group A car because it, it's so flattering to drive. Yeah. Uh, oh dear someday. Back. <laughs> someday, someday, someday. well Paul we might we might leave it there um, okay. thanks so much again for coming on uh, you've been yeah. very kind It's uh, we wanted to talk about the, the M3 with someone with a you know a working period knowledge of it for a long time so it's been it's yeah. been great uh, thank you so much really appreciate it